This Advent season, we have been really tracing the relational presence of God. I think this has turned out to be a really good thing as we have taken uh, and moved through the Bible book by book this year. And what we've done this Advent season through all the Sundays of December is we've traced a theme that moves us through the Bible, um, and that is this unifying theme of the story that, that God wants to be in a relationship with us. This is, as I mentioned uh, last week, it's more than his omnipresence, it's his relational presence. God has always wanted to be in a relationship with his creator and with his creation. And when Michael started this series out at the 1st of December, he talked about in the beginning, God has designed us so that he could be in a relationship with us. That's why we're created in his image. And then his desire was to be with us. Now, we frustrated that when we rebelled against him, and he uh, removed us from the garden in his presence. But it's interesting that after he did that, he still left the garden and put his presence in a tabernacle and in a temple so that he could be there and we could come into his presence. So God's desire, and it's almost as if he was chasing us around, and we continued to rebel again and again and again. And the prophets began to talk, and Shane shared with you, the, the prophets were predicting this was going to change. It was going to be different than, than um, a pillar and a cloud and a, a, a rushing wind in the cool of the evening that eventually the presence of God was prophesied and, and even small little pictures of him in a person being with his people. Then on Christmas Eve, I talked about how in the first coming, Christ actually came. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He came to be with us, and that provided for our redemption. But the story's not over because the culmination of this story is going to eventually be when we are not only just redeemed so that we can be in his presence, but we'll be restored and we'll be under his perfect rule. Um, As Kevin prayed so well, Um, The rulers that we have now range from incompetent to evil. But in that day, there will be a ruler in this world, Jesus Christ, and as those scriptures so clearly presented, when he comes back and his feet touch on the Mount of Olives, and he will rid the world of evil, and he will heal those who are brokenhearted, and, and then he will rule in righteousness. That is still to come for us. We're still looking forward to that. But I want you to see that not just as some political change, but it's the culmination of God's desire to be in a relationship with us. This theme of God's relational presence, um, honestly, it came out of a book by Scott Duvall and Danny Hayes, uh, where they take and trace this entire theme through the Bible at way more depth than we have gone through uh, in this series. Uh, But let me read you their summary of it, and then I'm going to kind of focus on the end point of all of this. Here's their summary. The Bible begins with God's presence relating to his people in the garden, Genesis. And it ends with God's presence relating to his people in the garden, Revelation. That's where we're going to end today. This holy, intense, powerful presence of God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and on Mount Sinai. And then it enters the tabernacle and later into the temple so that God can dwell among his people. You see this theme, God's wanting to be with them in the garden, in the temple, in the tabernacle. Yet because of their sin and disobedience, Israel is banished from God's presence. God departs from the temple and Israel is exiled from the land. The restoration of God's presence is promised throughout the Old Testament prophets and is fulfilled in the Gospels when Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, appears. Uh, 
The incarnation that we celebrated last week brings to a climax the relational presence of God, the theme that drove the entire Old Testament story. In Acts, after Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within each believer, and that's this change that we're going to kind of trace ourselves through. God came to dwell with us in the presence of Jesus, but when he left, he left the Holy Spirit to not just be with us, but to be in us to dwell within each believer, just as the holy presence of God in the Old Testament dwelt in the tabernacle or the temple. The entire story culminates at the end of Revelation, where the presence of God is once again in Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem now, and in the garden relating to his people. That's the flow. God's wanted to be with us. And here's here's the only question that we need to be asking. Not will all of this happen. That's assured. Just like all the promises that God made in the Old Testament prophets came through in the first coming, there are more promises yet to be fulfilled, and in the same way that they are fulfilled with unbelievable specificity of location, of means, of timing, of the first coming, the second coming will be fulfilled in exact specificity. It will happen like the scriptures say. That's guaranteed. Here's the question. Will we respond to God's desire to have a relational presence with us? Will we continue to engage in him and engage in getting to know him better through his word, engage in representing him well in the world, engage in conversation with him in prayer? He's going to do it, and he wants it. It's his desire. It's been the plan. It's going to happen. At what level are we going to be participating in 2024 in engaging in the relational presence of God? Uh, So what I want to do is I want to now take and kind of move from Christ came that we celebrated last week in the first coming. He came. But what happened after that and what's going to happen? And so I want to just review for a minute. In, in, In his coming, he provided redemption for us. Um. We were dead in our sins, and we have been made alive in Christ. That's what happened in his first coming. We were dead. He was alive. Um, Being dead in our sins, that's harmartiology. It's a big theological term. It's the doctrine of sin. There are numerous words for um, sin in the New Testament. One of them is harmartia. It means to to miss a mark. And it's not just missing a mark. Oops, I, I missed. It's missing a mark that was very important, and doing damage because you missed the mark. There are other words that we're going to see in this passage, words like um, trespassing, stepping over lines. And it's not like we accidentally fall over lines. No, we intentionally walk and step over lines. We fall short of the mark. We trespass. Um, We rebel against God and his authority because we want to be in charge. We are dead in our sins, and there's nothing dead people can do about their condition. But luckily, because of the grace of God, he makes us alive. That's the theological topic of soteriology. It's related to a Greek word, which means to save, to rescue. And that's what God has done for us. All of this is captured really well in in one single passage in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Let me show it to you. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins 
in which you formerly walked according to the pattern of this world. We walked in them. We didn't stumble in them. We walked in them. They were our natural pattern of life. It was according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Satan's in control of this system, and he's working with the world system and working with the weakness of our flesh to get us to walk in ways that are the pattern of the world. Among them, you two all formerly lived in the lusts of your flesh, indulging the desires of your flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And by the way, that lust of the flesh isn't always despicable. It's just what you want and you're craving. And that may be for power, for control. It may just be to, to rebelliously just to get your way. It may be to manipulatively get your way. But what it is, is it's the desire of our flesh to live our own way. But God... Being rich in mercy because of his great love, mercy, love, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It is God's mercy not giving us what we deserve. It's his love doing the best for us regardless of cost to him. And his grace giving us things that we don't earn. It's because of his mercy, his love, and his grace that he made us alive and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in a relationship with him in those heavenly places, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what God has done for us. We were dead in trespasses, in sin, in rebellion, in selfishness, in our own um, cravings and desires. We were dead living in that, walking in that. But because of his mercy, his love, and his grace, he has made us alive in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus did the thing that could make us alive. And what he did was live the perfect life that's the antithesis of everything we lived. And then lay that life down to pay the penalty so that his death could make us alive and alive so that we could be in relationship with God. He summarizes this way, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your efforts, it's not your performance. As I talked about last week, it's not more experiences or more knowledge or more rules. It is faith. It is trusting in the provision of God. And that doesn't come from yourselves. This whole package is a gift from God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them. He made us alive so that we could be a work of art for him. How much are we being a work of art? How much do... Our families, oh my gosh, I'm preaching to myself. How much do our friends see us as a work of art because God has taken a dead person and made them a blessing to people around him? That's the purpose. God wants to have a relationship so that people say that person must know something and be in a relationship with God that frees him up to bless me. That's God's purpose through all of this. We are his workmanship the, the word workmanship in, in Greek is poema. We are, we are his, his, his magnum opus poem. We, we are the, the perfect craftsmanship that he's put together. Are we living that out? We have been made alive in Christ. 
And, and what should be happening in that is that Christ should be formed in us. There's a pattern that Christ set, and his life being formed in us, it's called spiritual formation. Um, his life being formed in us so that we are becoming more and more like Christ. Christ-likeness, the goal of this transforming passion, this transforming period. And then as we are being transformed, we live on a mission to take this message that we were dead and we have been made alive, saved by grace through faith. We're on a mission to take that to the ends of the earth. Um, Colossians 3 puts it this way. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, that same theme that we saw in Ephesians. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Set your heart on heavenly things. Set your heart on Christ, getting to know him, falling in love with him, um, getting to know what he is like, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You're dead. You were dead. Set your minds on Christ. You were dead. Now we are connected to Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. There's still this future thing that where it's all going to be brought to a culmination. When we see him, we will be like him. But until that happens, until we appear with him in glory and we are completely transformed into his likeness, we should be setting our minds on Christ getting to know him as, as best we can, understanding how he's presented himself in Scripture and how all of Scripture points to him. Falling in love with Jesus, setting your things on heavenly things, setting your things on heavenly things, which means setting your mind on Christ, not on the earthly things that are all around you. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. All that dead way you used to live, selfishly pursuing your own thing, put to death your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's living like the people who are still dead who are going to be punished. Don't live like that. You've been made alive. Live like a person who is alive, and not just vibrantly alive, but alive and in a relationship with God, which is what he's always wanted. It's what he's designed for us and what he desires for us. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to one another, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and in the image of its creator. The perfect image of the creator is Jesus Christ. We were made in the image of God, and then that was flawed when we rebelled. But Christ is the perfect image of God, and we are being renewed into that image, Christ-likeness. And then there's this crazy phrase at the end of this passage. It's really bizarre. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, Democrat or Republican, American or Iranian, um, Palestinian or Israeli, there's no distinctions, but Christ is all and in all. Do we have a vision for that reality? Do we have that revision that Christ is the ultimate? It's not about America winning, America recovering. It's not about um, who's going to win in the Middle East. It's about this. Christ is all in all. And that's not just my political position. I'm just quoting scripture to you, folks. Christ is all in all. That's all that matters. Is Christ in me 
and that's all that matters. I'm trying to form the life of Christ, and I'm trying to get that around the world. And I don't want you to feel guilty about it. I want you to feel challenged about it. But, oh, my word, you gave $40,000 to the Christmas offering to get the message to a bunch of Scythians and barbarians. Awesome. Thank you so much. What about the people who live on my street? They're not Scythians or barbarians. They're nice people who live on Winterbrook. Do they see Christ as all in all in me? What about my family? Do they see Christ as all in all in me? As Christ is formed in me, it gives me the opportunity to take this message of God's mercy and love and grace that by grace when we were dead in our sins he made us alive in Christ and that reality transforming me so that I am more and more like Christ. I've heard a couple of things recently and Dawn and I have talked about it as we have been married now 30 almost eight years. She'll be here second hour and I'll check out exactly how many it is. We're becoming more and more like each other, (laughs) for good or bad. (laughs) Mostly me for good as I become like her, and mostly her for bad as she becomes more like me. But we're becoming more and more like each other because we spend so much time together. And we're just assuming each other's values. Do you spend that that kind of time with Christ so that you're becoming like him? And is that transforming you so that you are um, slowly becoming a different person? Um, It's usually not dramatic and big changes. It's a slow transformation. Um, I'm reading a book called Atomic Change, and and it talks about how most of the good changes in our life take place in little bitty increments, like atoms. Are we slowly growing? Um... Eugene Peterson calls it a long obedience in the same direction. Is that happening for us? Is it a quest that you have for 2024? Um, I've got some things I'm going to change in my life. I've started to change a few atomically. Some things in 2024 I'm hoping to be different. How much of 2024 will be me desiring at the deepest part of my being for Christ to be all in all for me. How about you? Christ-likeness, spiritual transformation, living on mission, and all of that with a helper. (laughs) When Christ left, he left a paraclete. It's very difficult to translate that Greek word paraclete. It's translated advocate, counselor, assistant, Um, it's all of that. It's someone who's going to be alongside you and who's going to be an advisor, an assistant, um, a guide. And that Christ said, I'm going to show you this. When he left Emmanuel, God with us, he said, it's better than that I leave being with you because I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit who is in you. And then our question becomes, he's in us. Are we allowing him to control us? The Spirit indwells, and that's our empowerment. When we are filled, we are empowered. It's there. 
Are we using what's available to us? In the upper room discourse, John 13 through 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's preparing them for his leaving. And he says this, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another paraclete, advocate, helper, counselor. He will give you another helper to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'm going to come back, but I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm leaving you with the Holy Spirit who will be in you. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, paraclete, helper, counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people don't believe in me, and the Holy Spirit will convict them of that. About righteousness, because I'm not here, I'm going to the Father, and so they don't see me as the model, but the Holy Spirit will point them to me to show them that I am righteousness. Because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The Holy Spirit will make it clear that evil will be judged. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he comes, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He's your guide, advocate, counselor. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He's going to guide you into the future. He will glorify me because it is not from me that he, that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. The Spirit is going to, I'm going to give him and he's going to make known to you everything you need to know. The Spirit is there to teach you more about Jesus Christ. Don't get drunk on wine. Now he's, I'm going to, to Paul in Ephesians. The Spirit is in you. He's in, the empowerment is there. How much are we going to cooperate with that? Paul says it this way, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Don't let wine or external forces control you. Whatever it is that you use to escape, I don't know what it is for you. Um, maybe it's sports. Maybe it's um, taking a long drive. For me, I know I'm stressed out when I eat or buy office products. I mean, it's better than cigarettes, I guess. But if I find myself um, looking on Amazon for a new pen, oh, I'm escaping. Or something to organize. I've got these cool things on my desk that when you open a book and it won't stay open for you, it's a, it's a leather little weight, um, it, and it... And it it's weighted on both ends, and it holds the book open. Sin! Oh, that is just escaping sin. I bought a cool little leather product. I don't know how you escape. Maybe it's destructive. Maybe it's innocuous. Like a, a Tornado retro pen. I got two for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. What controls you? What, what soothes you? What guides you? What calms you down? It should be the Spirit. He's in you. Will you be controlled by the Spirit? And when that happens, you'll be speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, 
songs from the Spirit, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord, the Father, for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you'll be recognizing Jesus Christ is all in all. And the Spirit is filling me, and the Spirit is pointing me back to Jesus so that I'll fall more in love with him. i got one last point to make here. <clears throat> when Christ comes the next time, it's not to redeem. Um, it is not to give us a pattern for how to live. It's not to empower us. He will come in power, ruling and reigning And unbelievably, he wants to do that with us. He will rule and reign with us. He will judge the world at the great white throne judgment. And then he will restore paradise and invite us to be there so that finally, at the end, he can be with us. Listen to how this plays itself out. We read some of these verses earlier. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. They tried to get away, they couldn't. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what had been done as recorded in these books. Here's what's happening. Everybody who's ever lived is standing before this great white throne. They open the books of lives that we've lived. Then they open a second book, the book of life, and everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. And if your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, because as you were dead, you were saved by grace through faith, your name then gets written in the Lamb's book of life. And that says you don't have to stand in this line anymore because you're being judged according to your name being written in the Lamb's book of life. The sea gave up the dead and all that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. And those who place their faith in Jesus Christ are judged according to what they've done because they put their faith in Christ and their names in this book so they don't have to stand before the judgment. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, the lake that is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. If your name's not written in the Lamb's book of life, you get judged you go it on your own, basically. Here's, here's the image I like to create. We're standing before God, and he says, how many of you want to depend on what Christ has done and his perfect provision, his perfect life? How many of you want to do that? And all of us who raised our hand and said, yeah, that's us. They said, let's check and make sure. Yeah, you, you did that in your life. Your name's written over here. Everybody else, you don't want to depend on what Christ did. You're going it on your own. Stand up. Let's give an account. And everybody falls short. And everybody who falls short is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. That's not the end of this story. Judgment's not the end. After there is judgment, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. Sea represents chaos in the Bible, Laura. Sea represents chaos in the Bible. There's no longer any chaos. Will there be water? I'm confident there'll be water, but no chaotic water, no dangerous water. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, here's the culmination of the story. It started in the garden when God designed us in his image so he could have a relationship with us, walking with us in the cool of the day. We blew it again and again and again and again. And he said, 
Do you guys see you can't do this on your own? I'm sending Jesus Christ to take care of the problem for you. Put your faith in that. Now, let that be transforming in your life so that Christ is formed in you. Okay, now I'm going to come back. And when I come back, here's the deal. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. Again, I'm telling you as clearly as I can, we are not going to spend our lives in heaven floating on a cloud with a diaper that doesn't fit, playing a harp that no one wants to play. We're going to be in a new heaven and a new earth that is more glorious than anything we can think or imagine, and everything we do will be worship. Here's the idea. The new Jerusalem is coming down because that's the temple. And the new Jerusalem comes down and sanctifies everything that happens on this new heaven and new earth so that every conversation we have will be worshipful. Every fish you catch will be worshipful. Every tea ball you hit off the tea will be worshipful. They will be his God and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the, old, the order of old things has passed away. This is the culmination of this story. God making his dwelling among us. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. You can count on this. God's going to do this. He's going to make everything new. He's going to make a place better than anything we could ever think or imagine. And when he makes that place and renews us after he has judged all of the rest of the people whose names are not written in the Lamb Book of Life, he will put us in this new heaven and new earth. It is a new earth. Um, it's not some ethereal existence. It is a tangible place with lakes and seas and uh, houses and people and interactions and and glory, and, and beauty. It's a new heaven and a new earth. That will happen. Does that captivate us at all? Until the guarantee happens, are our minds set on Christ? Is Christ being formed in us? Are we representing that well to the people on Winterbrook Drive and in the Czech Republic? I'll be in the Czech Republic in a couple of weeks. <laughs> How about the people on the plane as I'm flying over there? Will I represent Christ well on the plane? Today, we're going to um, eat at Tzatziki's, and we're going to get um, euros to take home, because that's our, our tradition is we eat euros on New Year's Eve. We're going to get some euros to take home. Will the people, when we walk out of Tzatziki's today... Will they say, that kid and Dawn, we like them. I'm so glad that they're customers of ours. Will they? I sure hope so. I want Christ to be formed in me. That only happens when, when Christ is my all in all. I want to represent him well. That's only when I live like him in the world. And I want to keep my, my hope set on him. So here's, here's the bottom line of this. God's relational presence in the person of Jesus Christ is everything we need. It provided for our redemption and the pattern that we should look like. And it's everything we'll enjoy. We will enjoy him forever. And one of the ways we will enjoy him forever is we will, at that point, be transformed in a way 
that makes us love everybody well. And far too often I think, oh, I'm so glad everybody else is going to be transformed. Oh, my word. I am so glad I will be transformed. That I will see him and be overwhelmed with his mercy and his love and his grace in a new way because I will see him as he really is. But until then, I want to see him more clearly. So where can we go? Uh, there's this chart. It's really gay. good. Um, what are some next steps? Make sure you've accepted the provision of Christ for salvation by grace through faith. Don't end this year <laughs> missing the first coming. He came the first time to make dead people alive, to make alienated people close to him. He came the first time so that his relational presence could be enjoyed as we are reconciled to him through the death of Jesus Christ. That's the first step. Secondly, daily depend on the provision of the Holy Spirit for Christ-like living and service. The Holy Spirit has been given to us so that we could be transformed and serve. Not your own efforts, not your own knowledge, not your own will. For me, I, I probably maybe with the exception of Mike. I, I might have more Bible knowledge than anybody in the room. Big freaking deal. Am I more Christ-like? Not by a long shot. Not by a long shot. It's the Holy Spirit that transforms. And wait for the coming of the Lord with eager hope. If I've done anything, I hope I have created within you a great expectation of what is to come and that that would become a motivator for how you live this next year. Father, thank you for this merciful, wise, gracious plan you have for us. Father, I pray that... Um, that we would appreciate what you've done for us in this past year and what you've done for us in our lifetime and what you have done for us in the life of Jesus Christ. Father, may, be, may we truly be grateful. But Father, please don't let us be complacent. You have taken dead people and made them alive. Let us live like Christ and live for Christ. May that be our passion in this next year, to live like Christ and live for Christ. And let us do that as we wait for you to bring it all to a conclusion exactly like you said you would, with confidence and hope and expectation. And may your spirit transform us. We ask that in Christ our Savior's name.